Let's do this. The Cult of Hockey podcast by the faithful and for the faithful. I'm David Staples of the Edmonton Journal, and I'm here today with Bruce McCurdy. Hey, Bruce. Hey, David. How are you doing tonight? Good, 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 good. That was a really <laughs> rancid hockey game, and the owners almost managed to give it away, uh, but they they squeaked out a two to one victory over the injury depleted, not very good to start Chicago Blackhawks, and now have an eight game winning streak. Bruce, mm. eight games, not bad, not bad. How are you doing? Oh, I'm starting to calm down. I did not enjoy that game one little tiny bit. I hated the first period, I hated the second period, and I hated the third period. So you're just a big ball of hate. Pretty much. <laughs> I'm, going, I'm, going to, I'm going to severely test my never critique a win mandate. All right. Because if I don't, I'm not going to have anything left to say. It was a, it was a shitty game. Oh, I had your eyes. It gosh. really was. For a win, wow, that was terrible. Take the two uh, points. I hope but, they're already on the tarmac getting out of Dodge. But you know what, Bruce? Um, 43 points now in uh, 37 yeah. games, a 581 uh, win percent points percentage. Nice. Uh, they're tied with, let's wait a second here. Let me get the wild card standings up. I think they're tied. Uh, we're tied with Seattle, but Seattle's played a lot more games. Give me one second. Okay, Nashville has four. Did they lose tonight? Um, 45 points they did. in 41 games, and they lost tonight to a week Anaheim. I didn't. I hadn't checked the score re- scores recently. That's good news. So the orders are just two back of Nashville with four games in hand, and three games in hand. They're tied with Seattle. Um. Two points back is St. Louis, and the Oilers have two games at hand on St. Louis. And um, then there's also Arizona's in the running. When you look at goals differential, Bruce, the Oilers are the only one of those teams with a positive goal differential. They're plus 19 at this point. Everyone else is either yeah. even or minus yeah. St. Louis. All of the really shows in that column. It's a, it's a good indicator of team play goals for and against. Yeah, indeed. It's the only one that matters, other than the win column, which is the one that matters. All right, Bruce, this is our two good things, two bad things, two numbers podcast with one conundrum. And I actually think the conundrum might be the most interesting part of the podcast. I'm curious to get your opinion on the question that's upcoming. Let's start out, though, with your good thing. Yeah, i got to go right back to Stu Skinner. wrote about him this morning about how well he's been playing with – Talked about in the last podcast, 28 goals against in his last 14 full games. Now it's 29 and 15. And what's that, about a 193 uh, goals against average. 25 more saves tonight, so he's bumped up his save percentage. Probably approaching 900 on the full season. I think he's over it now. Yeah, I think he's going to be. He was getting close, and he was coming from a long way back, right? He was at 854 at one point, and... uh, uh, he's been consistently uh, solid for a while now. And I thought he was solid in this game, and he needed to be solid while uh, some of the foundation was crumbling around him. He uh, he stood tall and and 
had to battle to see a lot of pucks. Chicago was getting pucks and players to the net front, which is two things the Oilers weren't doing particularly well. And uh, uh, Skinner, uh, he made some good saves through traffic. He made some good uh, decisions to freeze the puck so they could get one uh, underperforming line off the ice and replace it with another one. Uh, they had, He had, I mean, there were sessions of the game there where it was like four or five or 27 defensive zone face-offs in a row and Chicago would just control, puck would go to the point, guys would go to the net, puck would come in through traffic and, you know, chaos would ensue. And Skinner dealt with all of it. And he made he made one horrible turnover where he miscommunicated with Leon and passed it right to the other team. That nearly cost him, but it didn't. And uh, otherwise, uh, dare I say that Edmonton goalied Chicago tonight? Like I'm almost well, embarrassed to say it. I don't know. Chicago had more strong. shots, more expected shots, more goals, more. Ex- what was our count on on? Uh, they had more grade, grade A, a shots. shots. So it was uh, 12 to 10 for grade A yeah. shots, and the subset of five alarm shots was uh, six to five. Okay, and the goals so, were two to one for Edmonton. Yeah. So you our could, goalie you played could, better than their goalie. You could say it if you were to <laughs> running to write a provocative headline. You could say that. Mm-hmm. Uh, more accurate is he outplayed the other team's goalie, is what I would say. Uh-huh. He was the better goalie on the night, which yep. was which is always big. And, uh, yeah, his save percentage now in the season, Bruce, is 0.901. So fantastic. Good for Stu Skinner to pull that out. And, Mm -hmm. yeah, he made, in particular, early in the game, kind of a sprawling save on Ryan Donato. Mm -hmm. Um, The one that nearly made it 2-0 on the wraparound? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And um, he got his arm arm back there and... Mm -hmm. uh, who was who were the culprits on that one? I can't remember. Was that uh it was right after McLeod and right before uh, the one one. Yeah, McLeod got absolutely walked. Yeah. He just he just did a, the old Matador defense, tried to poke the puck <laughs> off the guy's stick while getting out of his way. Yeah. And he did succeed in getting out of his way. And Buddy just walked right right in and around the net and tried to pump it in. And <sighs> there was a the, the puck eventually did go in and the referees uh, who did quite a bit of this tonight, uh, weren't ruled that it was uh, no goal for Chicago that time. And He made another great stop off Donato in the third period. Um, <sighs> and um, there wasn't much activity on net in the second, for about 30 minutes, the second period and the first 10 minutes of the third. But then um, Chicago came alive, and they had a number of scoring chances right at the end. Rem Pitlick hit the goalpost, which was yeah. a big moment for um, for the uh, the Oilers uh, that that happened. But um, some pretty good uh, goaltending for sure. Yeah, it was uh, it was the one aspect of Edmonton's game that held up. I thought. And it was a good thing they played Stu tonight. Like originally, I was thinking this might be a Pickard game, but uh, I thought they might play Pickard too. I'm thinking if they had, they might not have won that game. Yeah, it's uh, you know, that game is the same two points they got for that incredible win over the New York Rangers just before Christmas, yep. right? And, yep. and uh, the Devils just before Takes Christmas. Two points. Uh, it's it's it looks it's the same in the standings, so it's you know utterly critical for the Oilers. They've got to keep putting up points. 
And there is a chance. There's an outside chance they're going to catch Los Angeles in the standings. Um, They've lost six in a row, David. No one's won eight in a row. I guess there's a chance. The, They've got some loser points in there, but Edmonton's gaining on them every night. Well, they're only four points back, Bruce, yeah. and the season isn't halfway over. They've played the same number of games. Orders are four points back. So this is, this is, I don't, you know, this is something that's achievable. The Golden Absolutely. Knights, uh, the Orders have three games in hand on the Golden Knights and are eight, uh, eight points back. Mm-hmm. So even that, they have an outside shot of catching the Golden Knights. And you know, the Canucks are way ahead. They've got fifty-seven points. The orders have 43, but they are the Canucks, so you never know. Well, and here's the goal. <laughs> I should say that. I shouldn't say that because the Canucks are such a great, they, they have been playing great hockey this year under Rick Tockett. Here's the goal differentials, though. <clears throat> Real goals, plus 54 for Vancouver, uh, plus 18 for Vegas, uh, plus 33 for Los Angeles, plus 17 for Edmonton. So the other three teams are, you know, well down, but Vancouver is... You know, they're in first place because at this point, they've been the best team. You know, I was interested in something, Bruce. You know, I was thinking, I, I wrote a post about how critical it is that the Oilers backcheck, you know, develop the habit of backchecking consistently. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking of kind of a one good measure of a coach is how many rush chances does his team give up? Because you don't have to have the most talented hockey team in the NHL to limit rush chances. So much of that is discipline, habit, positioning. Sure, some of it is skill, the, the defensive skill of the players. Like if you have, you know, some great skating, shutdown demon, you're going to limit rush chances. But I thought in terms of actually, you know, figuring out ways to rate coaches, specific things to pick out. So I, I, I asked uh, Megan Cheka, um, about this and mm-hmm. Megan is, uh, her brother, John was the GM of the coyotes and her, her husband. Uh, and, uh, I think she's involved. They run a, a stats company, uh, in, in, uh, based in Ontario. They've been running it up for about, I think John started it. They've been running it up for about 15 years. So anyway, she sent me the, the list of which teams give up the fewest rush chances per game played. Mm-hmm. In all, this is for all situations, not just even strength. So this is right. all situations, and the team that gives up the fewest is the Vancouver Canucks, two point nine two per game. So I think that says something about uh, Rick Tockett's coaching. I think that a team that is giving up so few rush chances, the team giving up the most is the Chicago Blackhawks, five point zero five per game, and the Edmonton Oilers were the sixth least, Bruce. According to their numbers, uh, 3.47. I should have just asked for even strength rather than all situations because um, the power play is a bit different situation. And mm-hmm. um, But uh, the orders are the sixth least. So, you know, we've made a lot of it this year, and I've complained mightily about it. I think you've mentioned it a few times. It's been mentioned a lot by Oilers fans, how many rush goals against the Oilers yeah, are giving yeah. up. But according to this, at least, in, in terms of the league, they're yeah. doing a pretty good job. And, they've and they have the shift. Right, right, they, they've, they've leveled yeah. up their stats, and you know, after I was writing about it this morning, after 18 games, they were five, 12, and one, and they were pretty dreadful. And then the last 18 games, well, now 19 games, 16 and three, and they've been playing better, obviously, but they're also getting, uh, 
you know, more results. Like they're scoring on a bit more rushes themselves or they're breaking up rushes or they're getting saves or like it seemed like every rush they gave up, the puck was going in the net for those first games especially. Yeah. And so that's uh, uh, regression is a thing and it should happen and it has happened. And, you know, they're still... As my stats point out this morning, they went from basically the, among the three worst teams in the league to almost the best team in the league out of two equal segments. So guess what? They're in the middle of the pack because that's how things average out. Here's the top 10 teams in terms of limiting rush chances, giving up the fewest in order. And it's interesting because most of them, many of them are either in the Pacific Division or in the Western Conference. So Vancouver is the best giving up the fewest, then Winnipeg Jets, Los Angeles Kings, then the Washington Capitals, then Minnesota Wild, Edmonton Oilers, Carolina Hurricanes, Seattle Kraken, Nashville Predators, and Vegas Golden Knights. So that's a lot of teams that Edmonton's uh, battling for right now, um, either in their division or for a playoff spot, give up very few rush chances. And so, and, and again, I think it is an indicator of good coaching on that team. That would be my argument. Bruce... My good thing is Matthias Ekholm, and um, he has he is the Oilers. He and Bouchard are the Oilers' number one D-man pairing. Um, most successful. I don't know if they always play the most minutes, but they are um, they're dominant right now. Ekholm and Bouchard are playing better than any defense pairing we've seen since Chris Pronger teamed up with Jason Smith in the 2006 playoffs. Um, They are just crushing it. And Ekholm, after an iffy start, has just been getting better and better and better tonight. I thought he was the Oilers' best player this game. Um, In the first period, uh, Drysaddle made a great play coming around the net and putting out a backhand pass from behind the net. And Echol moved into the slot and drilled a really great yeah. one-timer on net. Then, then uh, his best play of the game was in the second period on McDavid's fantastic goal, where he ripped a great stretch pass to McDavid on the fly, hit him, breaking in. And McDavid, as the greatest striker in the game did, he had great uh, finish and deked out the goalie and scored the goal. Fantastic play. Between periods, between the second and third periods, he ripped the Oilers for not working hard enough and, and doing more, getting in. I think he was frustrated with, he didn't say this with the forwards a, a little bit, for not pressuring the Chicago players for kind of half-assing it around the ice and not putting enough pressure on them. And he, and he, he, he let it rip. Then it, it, with, a, with a minute and a half left, he made an absolutely brilliant defensive stop at the side of the net to stop a goal. When Chicago yes. had the man advantage. So um Very likely, he, had a, yeah. he had a great game. And he is a great he is a great player. And and again, you know, when when we were weighing all of the work of Ken Holland, there are some bad moves. And we we know what they are, you know, one of them is in the AHL right now and um mm-hmm. causing some suffering. But um Matthias Eckholm, that was a hell of a trade. That really was. It's it's given the Oilers, I think, a legitimate chance to win the Cup last year, and we'll give them that same thing this year. 
Um, he he mix. puts them over the edge. Like to get a to get a top pairing defenseman, um, that's good work by the by the GM. Yes, it is. And I, I was going to mention that between periods in the interview. If you didn't, but I, I'm still going to mention it because I loved it. <laughs> that's what they need in the room is someone to you know to call a spade a spade to use an ancient expression uh and you know tell them that they need to be better and i guess maybe he did tell them because i can't imagine he went back into his room didn't say anything after saying that to the to uh, on-air tv audience and he at least walked the walked the walk and skated the skate and and uh, did just enough things, but uh, anyway, good on him. I would have picked him, and uh, if I'd have been picking stars tonight from the Oilers, it would have been Skinner and Eckholm. So, Skinner and Eckholm, who who did get picked? McDavid, Drysaddle, Dickinson were the three stars, the three goal scorers. Oh, the three, okay. The three goals that counted scorers. Well, they are in they are in America. Yeah. So yeah. he maybe Akom is did you ever, ever watch Ted Lasso, Bruce? Maybe he's like Jan Moss, mm-hmm. the Dutch player who always tells the truth in oh. rather uh dramatic or um profane? Not profane, but uh very blunt, very uh-huh. blunt fashion. Uh-huh. But uh um, yeah, Swedes are pretty good for that, I've found over the years. But uh anyway, he uh he didn't mince any words there and and I took encouragement from that. At least they're noticing that they're not playing well, <laughs> you know. So I'm going to morph on to, into my bad thing, which is, in fact, the defensive play of the forwards, which uh, might sound funny in a 2-1 victory, but uh, uh, I didn't find Edmonton's uh, 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 play in their D zone or in the neutral zone or really in any kind of transition play at all uh, to be very good. They... Uh, you know, Chicago was just sailing out of their zone and and uh, through the neutral zone, and they weren't getting picked up. Like, it always seemed to be there was one more Chicago guy coming up the ice than there was an oiler, or no oiler in position to take the guy who had the puck and was walking in with it. And in the third period in particular, they had just a dreadful time of making routine handles of the puck and getting it over the damn blue line. Holy moly, how many times did somebody fumble the puck and they couldn't clear the zone? And, I mean, hanging on to a one-goal lead, here's an idea. Make a play. You know, you've got all this skill. You know, somebody make a pass, you know, or carry the puck and don't fumble it two feet inside the blue line. Or, and it was on and on. There's a few forwards, uh, and I don't want to get in that necessarily individual so if I just thought that the offensive commit or the defensive commitment was weak from the forwards, there was way too much flying of the zone going on, uh, which might have been an idea if someone could make a pass, but those weren't happening. Yeah. So it was just a, it was just a, uh, one of those games. You, I don't know if you burn the tape, as the old saying goes, or if the coach uh, has a little session tomorrow. So. You know, Bruce, as we watch, you know, we watch these games closely, right? Uh-huh. And and we both know the the following to be true. That about one in ten games for a team is a stinker. You know, it's a stinker. And usually 
if you're if the orders have been playing it against any other kind of better team, they would have lost this game. They would have finished their chances and they would have beat the Oilers. But because it was a shock, it was a good time. You know, if you want to put the positive spin on it, maybe this was a good time to have your stinker game. Get that out of your system. Two points. And get the two points. Or maybe you need to actually really suffer in the stinker game to get the proper motivation to write your game and play better. Mm -hmm. But who knows about that? That's that's a difficult thing to say. I I just think it's you're going to have stinker games. This was one of them. Mm -hmm. And they got to win. So I'm not as I was I was good with that. I'm not as upset about the the, the play tonight. And although uh, it does occur to me that you know maybe their their low level of energy and low effort on a lot of plays will bleed into the next couple games. I don't know. They're going where are they going? Montreal and Toronto. Detroit and then or Detroit. Montreal. Detroit, Detroit and then Montreal. Montreal. All right. Well, and then they have Toronto after that. Uh, yeah, they play Toronto, um, here at some point. Yeah. So Detroit yeah, back well, in Edmonton. Yeah. Yeah. Detroit's so. not a natural, uh, it, it's not a natural game where you're going to be through the roof to play the Detroit Red Wings right now. I mean, they haven't been good in a long, long time. So maybe we'll see it there. Maybe it's going to come back to haunt them. This Maybe we'll see the same kind of thing and they'll lose if the, the streak will end in well, Detroit. Who knows? You play like that again. They're going, you know. They're going to lose. Yeah, they would let off the hook tonight. And even at that, I mean, this game could have been a little bit more comfortable in the third, as you're going to talk about. But the fact was, it was a nail biter right down to the not can't put the puck in the empty net again, right down to the dying seconds. You know, yeah. My bad thing, Bruce, is the three plays where Zach Hyman was involved and could have easily had two goals and been critical of critical factor on another by screening the goalie. The first one was the goal that McDavid fired in from outside where Hyman screened the goalie. And um, uh, honestly, I don't get it. Like uh, Hyman was outside. The, there, there was slight contact earlier in a, about two seconds before the shot, maybe. Mm-hmm. But Hyman moved out then. The goalie was able mm-hmm. to set wherever he wanted to. He was on the edge of the crease. He's allowed to be there. He wasn't making contact with the goalie. And the puck went in. Where's the problem? I I didn't see one. And um I don't I don't know. I don't like that to me was a good goal. Then in the early in the third period, um just a fantastic play by Darnell Nurse. He wins the puck on the boards. He lofts the, through the air. It was a, it was a really tough battle that Nurse was involved in. And he won the battle, game. and he lofted it through the air. And um, uh, Drysaddle picks it up and crosses the blue line with it. He picks it up kind of out of the air. He's bringing it under control as he's crossing the blue line. And um, puts it over to McDavid, and McDavid makes a brilliant pass to Hyman, who's charging the net, and Hyman slams it in. And uh, the refs call it a good goal on the ice. And as Louis DeBrusque said, I think quite correctly, like if you're going to overturn a call, you've got to be sure. And sure doesn't sound like like five minutes looking over videotape. That looks like you're not <clears throat> sure. And you're, you're, I don't know what the heck you're doing. Because there was a coach's challenge called and the refs look at it again and again and again and again. And they finally decide the dry sidle has gone offside. Bruce. I think it was too close to call, mm-hmm. and 
Way too close that's to the rule. overrule. Way, yeah, way too close to overrule. And that's another good goal. And the third one is mm. he has the wide open net in uh, with the empty net. And a Chicago mm. player makes a pretty heroic play to stop his shot, but he couldn't get that one either. He could have had... Anyway, it's, it's a tough night for Zach Hyman, but th- I don't know. What can you say? These things... I like Devin Bouchard's reaction after the game. He says, you just never know how these things are going to turn out. And you just, you got to, we know, we, we know that. And we know you can't let it get you down because you mm-hmm. just got to get out there and play. This is the right attitude for players. Bruce, we are not players. We are fans. Yeah. So you're allowed to be upset and angry um, over such plays. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's perfectly reasonable response from fans, which is, and I just think that sucked. That was, that was, you know, for one goal, Maybe they, you know, but two? Yeah, the first one, I thought if they challenged it, that the rest would say, well, the ruling on the ice was that Hyman was in the blue paint long enough to prevent the goalie from doing his job. And we're going to uphold our own call and you're going to get a penalty. Yeah. And I think they always thought, well, we got the lead, you know, we don't want to give him a power play. Uh, but... Uh, it could have gone their way, I guess, but the original call on the ice went against them, and it was a conservative call by the coach. But the the rule is there that if you're in the blue paint and you're the goalie, you know, can't get his space because there's an opponent there, then they have a you know they have cause for to cry foul. And Hyman did kind of clear out of there just before the shot came in. So anyway, the second one, that offside challenge, man, I hate that offside challenge with it heat of a thousand suns all it can do is take goals (laughs) off the board and this was the goal of the game you know this was the goal chicago fans paid to watch and it was taken off the board on a highly dubious series of circumstances uh i'll start with the fact that they showed five replays of the goal and i'm saying i hope the puck is dropped because i could tell it was close at the blue line when they come back to it and the, and here the ref's still kind of waiting. Well, Mr. Richardson, do you want to have a review? We really think you should have a review here. Come on now. And the, and, and so Richardson took like a minute and a half to, to claim the challenge while their, their own guys reviewed the tape probably 20 times. And it was so close. Like, have a, if you're going to have a, a review, review it in real time and do the whole thing in a minute. And if you can't tell, well, go with the call that you had on the ice. Simultaneity is a thing. And this was... One of those plays. I thought it was possible Leon's the very edge of his skate preceded the puck over the blue line by about a millimeter. But I also think the puck was on Leon's stick when it came over the blue line. He pulled it into himself to legalize the play. And they were so busy looking at where his skate was and where his toenail clippings were with relation to the blue line. They forgot to look where the frickin' puck was, which was on his stick. That's terrible. They overruled a goal because they had to say, we saw something that means that what we saw before was wrong. And I'm telling you, I didn't see any such thing. And I watched all 7,000 replays that they showed while they're internally waiting for these clowns to make their call. Bruce, I, I hated that call. I hate the offside calls with the heat of UY Scotty. Hmm. Do you know what that is? UY. Testing your astronomical knowledge here. You oh, Scotty. Oh, that's a that's a variable star, Scooty. S C U T I, right? There you go. I U Y U Y would be the numbering or lettering of uh, variable stars. The largest the known constellation star. of Scutum. Really? 
the largest known star in the universe is UI Scuti. If mm-hmm. UI Scuti were the center of our solar system, its photosphere or outer shell would reach past just past the orbit of Jupiter. Wow, wow that is big. Yeah. And that's the heat that I have in hatred mm-hmm. of that call. <laughs> okay, what is your number? Yeah, uh, I'm going to go with the number four. Uh, and that was the number of hits tonight by Adam Ernie. And this is the second game in a row this has happened. It's kind of concerning. On Saturday night against Ottawa, Oilers had 14 hits in the entire game. And Adam Ernie, who played what, six minutes in that game, uh, 6.45, he had five of them. And a few other guys had one, and Warren Fogle had two, and the rest had none. Well, tonight the Oilers had, wait for it, nine hits in the game. Four of them by Adam Ernie, who played six minutes and 25 seconds. And he literally had like half of the hits of the entire team, which had five men on the ice for 60 minutes. And one guy in six minutes has the sort of same number of hits as everybody else. Like, play like you want it, guys. Take it to the battle. Win a physical battle once in a while. Take somebody out. Knock them down. It's legal, mostly. I see a... Four hits for Ernie, five for everyone else. And my number so. is one, mm-hmm. which was the number of hits for uh, Evander Kane. And um, I see he's trending on Twitter here. People complaining about the stupid penalty that he took, which is fair comment. You know, um, he, he will get penalties because he plays a rugged game. Uh, I haven't noticed that but to be a particular Benoit Pouliot of a problem for Evander Kane. But... His listen when he was healthy um, earlier this year, he was throwing five, six, seven, eight hits a game, and a lot of yeah. them vicious hits. Uh, I think I read on Twitter that Bob Stoffer mentioned. I didn't. I didn't hear this myself, so this is Twitter scuttle. But that that Kane is, we know he's been injured. Apparently, he's had a some kind of lower body problem for the last month, and it really has been in the last month. His his game started off super slow. It went up. Yeah, he was dragging the team almost single-handedly for a while there. He, he had the a great month, month and a half. And then in the last month, he's really, he has struggled and he hasn't been as physical. I can imagine if he's really hurting and, and battling an injury, it would be really hard to go in there and um, first of all, have the timing to make hits and then also the desire to, to get involved physically when you're hurting. But he hasn't been and it's having an impact. And I almost wonder, and I can't, we, we may have talked this about this before, like just maybe they should sit him for, you know, right now, um, let him get better. Like into the, into the, uh, he's got this break coming up. The owners have this break coming up, uh, the all-star break and just let him have two weeks off. And again, I doubt he wants that, but it might be really good for him. And it would be good for the Oilers if, if he was able to heal up and maybe two weeks isn't going to be enough, but it probably couldn't hurt. Wouldn't hurt at all. So, uh, yeah, Kane has not been himself and, um, they could use him. Maybe, maybe it's not, maybe he's, he is getting slowly better though. And, and, uh, so I'm not, I don't know his injury situation. I can't say for sure, but he's, he's kind of a shadow of what he was uh, about a month yes. and a half ago when he was such, he was a dominant player for a while again. Yeah. Yeah. He had a lot of games where he was having three, four or five shots on that. Yeah, and four, five, six, seven hits. You know, there's one game, uh, uh, ten hits, four shots. You know, another hit. 
seven and three, four and five, six and four, you know, where he's like big numbers in both categories. Tonight, one hit, zero shots, and just one shot attempt. And I can remember it. The puck came to him in the high slot, and he just just turned and slammed one generally towards the net and rocketed off the glass, and it went out and... and uh, Chicago wound up with an odd man rush because the wild shot just went nowhere. And it was like, there wasn't a whole lot of, of um, planning that went into that particular one. He just kind of whacked it and missed the net by a wide margin and out it came. And he just, the puck died on a stick a few times. And he says, he say, he like you playing hurt because we've seen him so much better than this. And I think just maybe a little disengaged since he got put on the third line. And they had him and Brown back together tonight, which has not been a good combination at any point. Uh, and uh, they had uh, they had their struggles. And his, whatever it is, I heard it called a core body injury. When he missed the one game at Los Angeles, they were referring to a groin injury, which I guess is a core body thing. And... and uh, Whatever it is, he's far from 100%, and uh, I wouldn't be upset in the slightest if they gave Sam Gagne a game in his spot and said, you know, say, get better. Two games. Take, like just, yeah, yeah. Take, a, take, take some time and get better. I guess it's quite a while till the break now, though. It's, what, three or four yeah, games, five games so, still. Yeah. No, it's like so. eight games, isn't it? It's like a three weeks of games here before oh, the break. Yeah, fair enough. It might be a little early. So. but Okay, Bruce, um, let's move on our, to our conundrum. And the question tonight is, um, would the Edmonton Oilers be better off if there was a free market for players? I, no hard salary cap. If it was like, like the NHL between about 1991 and 2005, 2004, mm-hmm. when, you were pretty, when, when players got to a certain age, I think it was 30, 28 or 30, something in there or certain service, was it seven years? Um, they yeah, were completely free, free, completely free to sign with whoever they wanted. And I just wonder if the orders at this point would be better off under that system. And this, I'm raising this because prominent NHL player agent Alan Walsh made a, made a pitch for this after the Nylander contract was signed. And there was, of course, outcry from some people saying, you know, he's over, he's overpaid immediately, you know, half the fans, he's overpaid, half the fans are okay with it. And what um, Alan Walsh said, quote, is back in 2004, Bob Goodenow, who was then head of the NHLPA, said a hard salary cap would dominate fan and media discussions, become detrimental to growing the game we love. He was right. Nowadays, the fan bases around the NHL are all wringing their hands over a a player's um, average annual, what's the V stand for? Value. 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 AAV. The debate becomes, he, quote, Quote, he's a really good player, but is he worth $6 million AAV? We only have so much cap space to go around. This yeah. could have been avoided with a luxury tax. So, of course, Walsh is an agent, and he doesn't like the hard cap. You can't blame him for that. The, you know, why would he? Some, so I think star players would be making two or three times as much um, if there was um, no limit on what they could be paid. So, Bruce... At the time, in 2004-05, I don't know how you felt, but I was in favor of the the strike that led to the hard cap. The, the lockout? Had the lockout. Yeah, excuse me. 
the lockout that led to the um, hard cap. Um, it was the NHL owners who locked out the players and um, didn't let them back into the NHL unless they agreed to a hard cap. And that's what happened after we missed a whole season of hockey. Uh, I was at that time, the owners were one of the lowest revenue teams in the NHL. And I was in, you know, I'm, I'm primarily an Oilers fan. So I look all their league dealings with how it's going to affect the Oilers ability to win or lose. So I was, I, I, I wanted to see that hard cap and the owners got it. Um, Things have changed though. And I'm just wondering what you think. Do you think it would be a good idea um, for the league and for the Oilers if there was uh, more freedom in this area for signing players to bigger contracts? Well, I guess if you could take a snapshot right now of, you know, the relative financial strengths. I mean, you also wrote in that post that uh, Oilers were tied with Toronto as a revenue, top revenue generators in the league. So on that basis... They, you know, in theory, they got the money to uh, uh, get into the market and uh, and sign players. I mean, my question is, would they would they have survived from then until now to get in such a strong position? Uh, you know, and especially to what degree would they uh, would you have to change up that market like? Would McDavid and Drysaddle have signed here for eight years if the setup had been different and there was no sort of upper limits and stuff? Uh, you know, there were different incentives out there. So it's kind of hard to ask the question in a single moment when we've had what now 18 years of of uh, the new uh, hard salary cap system. Uh, I didn't like the lockout and I hated the fact that it cost us an entire season. For uh, them to resolve it, and in the end, they they might as well have signed it to, at the beginning for all that anything really changed. But uh, it was, uh, uh, you know, 20 years later, and I still resent the fact that there was an entire season that didn't get played because these guys couldn't figure out how to sp- divide up their millions. But it's part of the history. Uh, I I. Th- Edmonton was one of the teams that was strongest for uh, this salary cap because they were tired of, you know, having a $38 million payroll playing against Detroit with an $83 million payroll or Toronto or New York Rangers, you know, $100 million or whatever the heck they got up to. And they were uh, wanting to have this, you know, sort of competitive balance. Well, we certainly got all of that or we had it for had it for uh, for quite a while. It's actually... The competitive balance now, it's kind of changing. I think the league is really starting to stratify the competitive teams and uncompetitive teams. And there's a fair number of the latter, or there didn't used to be that many of them. But uh, um, uh, I think, I mean, Edmonton's, I mean, it's still hard for me to believe that Edmonton was 30th and last in the NHL in revenues 20 years ago. And now they're first. Like last, the first, just getting to the middle of the pack would have been a fantastic accomplishment. It is first, an amazing. It's amazing. Blows me away. It, it did me too, Bruce. I couldn't believe it when I saw that. This is this is from Forbes, and mm-hmm. and they're you know you take their numbers with a grain of salt, but they have been doing this for twenty five years. Yes, they've been looking at this, and they have their sources, and I don't know how incorrect they are, but to see the orders go from, dead uh, last. you know, dead <laughs> last to first, oh. tied for first with Toronto. 
Toronto Maple Leafs, the, the same amount of revenue as the Toronto hockey market. Now, the Oilers had playoffs, an extra round of playoffs this past year, mm-hmm. which would have bumped up their revenues about, I don't know, $10 million or so. So, but nonetheless, what an achievement for the business office for Daryl Cates of the Edmonton Oilers. I mean, much of the credit comes down to two things. A new arena, um, you know, which is still, which is regarded in the NHL as one of the best arenas in the NHL. And um, in terms of our downtown, I would argue is one of the one of the few things, if only the only really great thing going for our downtown right now. Um, and Cates has developed that area, made a lot of money doing that as well. And then Connor McDavid's arrival, of course, is the other huge factor. I, mm-hmm. I mean, how much of the the orders are estimated by Forbes to be worth one point eight five billion dollars, Bruce. How many hundreds of millions of dollars has Connor McDavid added to the value of this team? I, I, a few years ago, I estimated he'd add about 200, he would add about 200 million. Um, but I think I underestimated by about three, I think it's probably more like half a billion dollars he's added to the Oilers. And, um, if not more than that. Just a lot more than they're paying him. That is. So that's why I say, like, what would Connor McDavid get in an open market? Well, but the Oilers have ever got Connor McDavid in an open market. Yeah. You know? I mean, yeah, this is the thing. Like, this is a highly speculative question. And we're like, it's like, you know, what would have happened in the Second World War if Germany hadn't invaded Russia? It is a question along those lines. Yes. Right now, to get, um, right now to get a, to get rid of the hard cap, you'd need it. The players would have to be w- willing to sit out a year. And Bruce, Given the way the world is now with our shorter attention spans, which I really do believe are shorter because of social yes, media. 100%. I think if the Oilers, I think if the NHL shut down for a year, it would be utterly catastrophic for the league in a way they can't, they can, that none of them can comprehend. How many people would move on from hockey in that time and change their habits? Mm-hmm. I mean, they, I think- they really, they, during COVID, it was tough enough keep the fans but and they kept playing they, they figured out a way to keep playing but if they miss a whole year right now good luck to them mm-hmm. and um, so it's it's kind of a a moot point in that way I don't think either side's prepared to do right. that but so so the interesting thing is if it if let's say it did, somehow it did happen Everyone thought it was in their best interest for some reason, which I don't think will happen with the owners. But if they did, <laughs> it's fascinating the owners could actually compete in terms of revenue as for it now. stands now. For now, as you say, like yeah. if they lost Connor McDavid, maybe they, you know, maybe they lose suddenly their revenue go, you know, drops 20, 30, 40, 50%. It's possible. I remember the playing going to games in the 90s, David, and there was like eight, nine, eleven thousand people in the stands at NHL games. And we had, you know, that's when Les Alexander and Michael Larg and all them fast-talking Americans came out and wanted to take I our team Larg. away. <laughs> <laughs> he was Michael one. Uh, anyway. Uh, he was um, a fraud. For people who wonder why we're laughing, Michael Larg was a fraud. Like, he, he didn't. Absolute. He, it was rumored he was going to buy the orders and bring them to New York. And he just, it was rumored. Like, then, then we found out. He like, had some he deep pockets friend who didn't exist. And he himself yeah. didn't have a pot to piss in. He lived in his mom's <laughs> basement, like literally. Um, <laughs> so, But he sure was a fast talker. Yeah. So, anyways, uh, uh, Les Alexander was a serious threat to take the team oh, to yeah. Houston. Yeah. And I was saying to to uh, my wife this morning when we were talking about this uh, 
this news and I said, you know, I, I can't get my head around the fact there was four WHA teams that got in in 1979 and three of them didn't survive. Like the franchises are still around, but none of the cities yeah. are. Quebec got moved out. Uh, Hartford got moved out. And uh, Winnipeg okay. got moved out to uh, uh, yes. states. And then a new Winnipeg came back to take their place. Like they're the closest to being a WHA team. So, and Edmonton was like a death door with these, you know, where they had a crappy team around 1995 yeah. and they had uh uh you know an owner with uh very short pockets and uh owners uh, yeah oh and, you're talking about pocklington yeah 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 in the in the, in the uh les alexander phase of yeah of that and it was uh you know i mean the edmonton investors group basically saved the the franchise is what the legend has it and i believe it to mostly be true that they, uh, you know, this team was gone and they had, was it 37 partners breaking into their piggy banks to get enough to keep the team going, you know, but it was, it was a near thing. And for that team, for any WHA team to suddenly be on top of the big pile with the New Yorks and, uh, and, uh, Montreal's and Toronto's Boston's of the, of the world, it just, uh, it's frankly astonishing. It really is. Although I do wonder under Pocklington in the in the Stanley Cup era, where the orders ranked for revenue, because they had all those great Stanley Cup um, wins and they had a sold out mm-hmm. arena. And yes. I, I think the orders actually at that point were doing pretty well. But of course, Pocklington had such major financial troubles with all those other companies that the money was drained away into those businesses, not kept in the hockey team. And then, you know, the hockey team started selling off players and Mm-hmm. You had this terrible downwards cycle where people lost faith in the owner. Nope. Anyway, all ancient history now versus it's very live. It's alive in me and alive in you. We we all, we, we, you know, we both remember this a, a lived like it experience. was yesterday. That's right. It's part of our being an Oilers fan and it colors how we view this team, the struggles of this team, um, the financial situation of this team, the arena, all of these things are colored by our past experience as Oilers fans. And sometimes, you know, I think there's a there's a disconnect between fans who started cheering for the team, let's say, in the 2006 Stanley Cup run, who they see the they see everything differently. And sometimes, in I think that the negative moves hit them harder um, than they hit us because I mean. I lived through the Gretzky trade, the Gretzky sale, and the Messier trade, and the Curry trade, and the, all of these great players leaving. So, it, you know, it doesn't seem such a big deal if, like, let's say there's a slight overpay on Darnell Nurse, for instance. Uh, I can live but with Adam that. But Alan Walsh has a point about that, and Darnell Nurse is a classic case in point of a guy that almost doesn't matter what he does. He's always getting judged by his contract and by what he costs against the cap. And he could be a $9.249 million player and he would be judged against that $9.25 million cap that he has. Yeah. You know, I'm from the age where, okay, once you've got your team and the team's on the ice, you root for your team, right? He's part of the team. I'm rooting for him too, whoever it is. Uh, And, uh, with very rare exceptions of players that did something egregious enough to make me step back. But normally I root for, you know, the guys on my team. And if they're overpaid or underpaid, well, it's a thing. And it's on the GM for sure. But taking it out on the individual players and stuff is, uh, 
That's I don't think that's right. I'm not big on it either. That said, you know, Cam uh, Walsh's solutions. People were suggesting that in Major League Baseball and the NFL and the NBA, people are every bit as much on on the players for their salaries, even with the luxury tax or the various systems that are in place in the other league. Everyone's kind of grinding on the players and their value against their contract in all of these leagues, and it's not that different. I'm not a as, I'm not a big enough fan of any of those leagues to know if that's true or not. Um, I think though. From what I know of the Premier League in England, where players are brought in, there's it's a free system, and you know you pay whatever you want. Generally, like there's some limits, but uh, based on your revenue, but there's astronomical amounts paid for players to come in, and they get these huge salaries. There's less of that, I find, in I think in the Premier League, it's just more like it was used to be in the NHL, where yeah, really you just rated a player on their performance and you might gross down then about their contract, mm-hmm. but not that much. Most people never didn't do it that much. It wasn't this huge perspective on the game like it is now where, it, and it actually really is important, the value that you get um, as compared to the player's contract. It's not a trivial issue. It's it's critical to a team winning. So I can see why everyone who's a fan of the game thinks about that a lot. Oh, it's part of, I mean, it's part of the calculation yeah. for sure. Yeah. But there are times where, I mean, the time to be doing that is in the summer when you're putting your team together. Yes. And, you know, once, once the team is made, like constantly bringing it up. I know. It's pointless. I find it tedious as well, but mm-hmm. everyone's going to be a it's fan in their way. own way. And I try to uh, accept how other people want to be fans mm-hmm. and not, no, I'm not always successful, Bruce, I admit it, but uh, that's my, that's my attempt. All right, let's, uh, let's leave this there. And we'll, we're, uh, next game is Thursday night. Correct? At Detroit. At Detroit. Bruce, thanks for talking tonight. Thanks for listening, everyone. And in the meantime, and in between times, this has been another edition of the Cult of Hockey podcast.